All right, if you could open up to Genesis 29, we are going to continue on in our Genesis study. Since it's Father's Day, we're going to talk about fathers, but earthly fathers for just a little bit so we can talk about the Father for a large bit. And I think fatherhood over the last 50 years has been downgraded, and so it's really important for us to recognize how important fathers are. And so, Dad, this message isn't really a message to chastise you, but to encourage you to let you know that you are important. So the title of this message is just simple. It's Dear Dad. And I have a little letter to dads on behalf of all people in the family. And it's simply this. Dear Dad, did you know your opinion really matters? Both your wife and your children need to know the answer to one very important question. And it is this. Dear Dad, do you love me? Not only has a father been designed to represent our Heavenly Father, the tangible Father, but people in your home have a bad case of what I'm going to call the disease of alienation. Alienation has affected all of us. Alienation, according to Colossians chapter 121 says, we are alienated in our minds from God and we become enemies in our minds because of our evil behavior. So alienation is this. Sin has affected us to the degree that it has separated us. Go ahead, Declan, hit it up there. Sin has separated us from God the Father. Sin has separated us from each other. And it leaves us feeling really vulnerable and alone. That's why when people will come into a big church like this, a lot of times visitors will come into a big church like this and they'll tell me, you know what, even though it's big, I feel, I feel alone. I don't feel accepted. Sin has warped us all. Not just what I'd call basically imputed sin, since Adam sinned, we're all sinners, but because of our own personal sin, it's caused a wall to be put between not just God, but each other. We have a disconnect. It's a natural disconnect based on sin. So in our little minds, we want to know, is God for us? It's, uh, I might have shared this with you before. You might not have heard this, but when I, I was a youth pastor for eight years. And I can remember, I was going to a youth group one time, and it was a rather large youth group. There was about 80 kids that came this night. And as I was heading up the stairs, we used to have the youth room up in the old blue gym. And I can remember going into the room, and there was about three kids that were just sitting in the corner with their arms like this, while a lot of people were downstairs playing basketball and laughing. And I said, what's the matter? They said, ah, we just don't feel a part of this group. We feel left out, like nobody really notices us. So when everybody gathered, I just thought I'd ask the question. And there was 80 kids sitting in this big room. I said, how many of you feel that you are not a part of the main group of this youth group? How many of you feel marginalized, like you're on the outskirts? Out of 80 people, how many people do you think raised their hand? About 75 to 77. So that's a good 90% of people of the youth felt like they weren't a part of it. They didn't belong, where nobody cared about them. That's alienation. 
It's in your heart. It's in all of our hearts. We wonder. That's why Romans 8 is so emphatic. If God is for us, who can be against us? And then he gives proof by that. It says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? In other words, God's for us. And that's what this whole message is about today. We are going to study a severe case of alienation. We're going to study about this lady named Leah. And if you can follow along with me, we're going to read about her. As I've, I've read this story in my life, oh, a lot. A lot of times. And I have to be honest with you, almost every time I've read it, I didn't think much of Leah. But we're going to focus on her today because in a sense, she is the closest one to God through this whole story. So let's pick up, starting in verse 1. If you remember last week, the story was about Jacob, fell asleep on a rock, there's a stairway to heaven, he was running from Esau, and he had a 400 mile trip to go from his hometown of Beersheba to Haran. That's where his mom was from. That's where we pick up. Verse 1. Then Jacob continued on his journey and came to the land of the eastern peoples. There he saw a well in the field with three flocks of sheep lying near it because the flocks were watered from that well. The stone over the mouth of the well was large. When all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone away from the well's mouth and water the sheep. Then they would return the stone to its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob asked the shepherds, My brothers, where are you from? We're from Haran, they replied. He said to them, Do you know Laban, Nahor's grandson? Yes, we know him, they answered. Then Jacob asked him, Is he well? Well, yes, he is, they said. And here comes his daughter, Rachel, with the sheep. Look, he said, the sun is still high. It is not time for the flocks to be gathered. Water the sheep and take them back to the pasture. In other words, he's trying to get rid of them because he sees Rachel and he wants his chance alone with her. This is one, what you're going to see, one attractive lady. And he's smitten instantly. As they'd say in the movie Bambi, twitterpated. He's twitterpated. So we have in verse 8. They said, we can't, they replied, until all the flocks are gathered and the stone has been rolled away from the mouth of the well. Then we will water the sheep. While he was still talking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. When Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, and uh, by the way, from this point on, I'm going to call him Creepy Laban, because you're going to see he's one of the creepiest characters in all of the Bible. So I'm going to read, When Jacob saw Rachel, daughter of Creepy Laban, his mother's uh, brother, and Creepy Laban's sheep, he went over and rolled the stone away from the mouth of the well and watered his uncle's sheep. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and began to weep aloud. He had told Rachel that he was a relative of her father and a son of Rebekah. So she ran and told her father. As soon as Creepy Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he hurried to meet him. He embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his home. And there Jacob told him all these things. Then Laban, creepy Laban, said to him, You're my own flesh and blood. Now you have to remember, just stop there for a second. A couple sermons ago, 
Abraham's son was named Isaac. He's looking for a bride for Isaac. He sent his servant to Haran. His servant went to the same place, went to a well, and met a lady by the name of Rebekah. And Laban was there where he gave Laban all kind of money and took Rebekah back. So Rebekah then sends his, her son, Jacob, to the same place. He shows up to the same well, and there he sees a beautiful woman named Rachel. And Laban, of course, is pretty excited about this because the first time this happened, he got paid pretty well. So he's pretty excited here. And that's why he says in verse 14, you are my own flesh and blood. It's great to have you here. After Jacob stayed with him for a whole month, Laban said to him, just because you're a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Now, creepy Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah. And the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel was lovely in form and beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Creepy Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than some other man. Stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel. But they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Then Jacob said to Creepy Laban, Give me my wife. My time is completed. I want to lie with her. So seven years is over. I'm ready to get married. Everything is exciting. This is what's happening. I have to be honest with you. Every time I've read this, I just am really excited for Jacob. He ran away from Esau, meets the, meets lo the love of his life. Man, it's like waiting seven years is like nothing. He can't wait to be with Rachel. And as a reader, it's exciting. He's getting married. But you miss Leah. Actually, people often make fun of Leah. Poor old Leah. But Rachel, now she was a looker. What we're going to see is Leah is more like us than anybody else. Because what you're going to see is Leah, is she is, feels overlooked and Basically unloved. Overlooked and unloved. That's a result of alienation. We all feel that way. We all wonder in our darkest moments, does God really love us? And here's uh, why I say she is overlooked and unwanted. The first is because of the physical reality of how she looked. Verse 17, it says, Leah had weak eyes. There's some speculation on what that means. Was she nearsighted? Did she have to wear big glasses? And did she knock into walls all the time? Or did she have, you know, like really sad, heavy eyelids, you know, where you look at her and you're like, now that girl, nah, I don't know about her. But we've seen Rachel. Rachel's the girl that gets 100,000 hits on every Instagram post. We know Rachel. Rachel's the one that, the guys will come out and be happy to roll the stone off the well for her. But poor old Leah can't even get five hits on her Instagram post. And she's probably got huge biceps because she had to lift the stone off the well. So in a way, you know, you, 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 you feel bad for Leah because image matters to a lot of people, especially in our culture. Image is almost everything. We're obsessed by it. We value self by how we look on our selfie. It's, it's sick, actually. 
it's a sickness. Because it's all we do. I remember I was preaching one time in Poland at the University of Poland. And I was talking about, I gave my testimony. And I was talking about how Jesus loves the world. And he died for everybody. Because he loves them. Unconditional love. And this uh, girl came up. She's probably about 21. She was goth dressed. That means she was in all black. Black lipstick, black fingernails. She had, you know, just black hair with piercings. And she came up to me and she said, honestly, I'm interested in this Jesus you're talking about. But I don't think Jesus would ever be interested in me. And I said, well, why not? She said, well, just look at me. I use drugs. I have no respect for myself. I'm unattractive. Why would God want me? Why would He want me? I'm telling you, you felt that. Especially in the second service, you'll be more honest about that. First service, well, I've never felt that. Yes, you have. We all feel that. It's alienation. In our gut, we wonder, does anybody really care about me? Let alone God. I probably upset Him every day. How could He love me? How could He love me? And you're probably looking at, looking up at me and saying, well, Pastor Chris, you're the pastor up there. That. You, you don't have those feelings. Let me tell you, when I was in eighth grade, I was in a private school for about six years, and I had to transfer to the public school. And we had a big public school. And now I had a baseball, I was on a baseball team with a lot of public school guys. And they said, you know, if you're transferring, you need to meet some of the popular girls. So they basically, they set up a date where we went out with about four of the popular cheerleaders to a local amusement park. And I can remember I was, I was shy, like nervous shy. And I went up a roller coaster sitting next to one of the most popular girls, went down the roller coaster, got off the roller coaster, and the girl looked at me and she said, you are the most boring person I've ever met in my life. You have absolutely no personality. So for the next three years, I just threw sticks to my dog. You know, like, no, nobody loves me. We all have had that. It's alienation. It's alienation. And then she has these, what I would just say, unavoidable, terrible, horrendous circumstances. She can't avoid this. In chapter 11... You know, Jacob's, Jacob kissed Rachel because here he is in his mind. He remembers the story of his dad and mom, where his mom was met the servant. He probably in his mind, the same thing's going to happen to him. And sure enough, there's Rachel, sees her right away. He falls madly in love with her. Verse 18, he loves her so much, it says, it says I will work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter. And in verse 20, he loved her so much, those seven years were like a blink of an eye. I mean, this is love at first sight. Poor Leah. Nobody loves her. But then it really gets bad. And this is why I call him Creepy Laban. Look at verse 23, starting 22. By the way, the rest of the story is not a model for how marriages and families should go. I'll just tell you that. So starting in verse 22. So, verse 21, give me my wife, my time's complete, it means seven years up, I'm ready to get married. So Laban brought out together all the people, and the place gave a feast. Yeah, a wedding feast. You can hear the trumpets, everybody's dressed up, this is a fantastic time. But, very dangerous word when you're reading a narrative, but, 
when evening came, he, who's he? Creepy Laban. Creepy Laban took his daughter Leah and gave her to Jacob, and Jacob lay with her. So here's what happened. Here's Jacob waiting for his wife to consummate their marriage in the tent. It's dark. Laban puts a veil on his daughter Leah and sends her in the tent to go sleep with Jacob. That's creepy. And that's not Leah's fault. Because watch what happens. Laban gave his servant girl Zilpah to his daughter's maidservant. When morning came, in the narrative it's written like this, there was Leah. Jacob wakes up, what? What? Who did this to me? Creepy Laban did this. And he gets creepier as the things go on. So Jacob said to Laban, what is this you've done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? And Laban tries to be real political. It's not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. It's our custom, you see. No, you lied to him. You deceived him. And that's what we're going to learn next week is that's part of the who Jacob was as a deceiver. Deceit was the way God broke him through this creepy Laban guy. Verse 27, finish this daughter's bride a week, then we'll give you the younger one also in return for another seven years of work. So he has to work another seven years, a total of 14 years he had to wait to get the love of his life, Rachel. And then it gets sad, and Jacob did so. He finished the week with Leah, and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his servant girl Bilhah to be the daughter Rachel's maidservant. Jacob lay with Rachel also, and then here it is, and he loved Rachel more than Leah. If you're Leah, that hurts. That stings. It's terrible. And this isn't her fault. It's not fair, really. David, David in Psalm 73, he talks about this time where he's looking at the ungodly, and they are prospering. The wicked are just, they're, they're making bank. And he says they mock God, they ignore his law, they drink up sin in abundance, and yet they prosper. So he sighs and he wonders, what's the use? Why try to stay pure? Why continue following God? And I know you've been there. Sometimes circumstances seem like nothing's going your way, so maybe God's not for you. Maybe he doesn't love you. I mean, think about being Dave Harrison. He just lost his mom and then he lost his baby sister at the age of 52 last week. I saw him, you know, talking to him. It just doesn't seem fair sometimes. And in your heart, when you're going through this, everybody else seems to succeed. You'll probably say, maybe my failures is a sign that God doesn't love me. What that is called is alienation. It's alienation. It's this separation that I feel, and I try to find evidences that God loves me, and sometimes they're not there. And that even deeper, puts in our heart this idea that maybe I'm all alone with nobody loving us. So maybe it's from your natural limitations or circumstantial reality, it's easy to slip into a valley of despair, thinking that even God himself has abandoned me. And you know who loves to get you in this valley of despair? His name is Satan. He loves it. He loves it. That's his job. To doubt God's goodness as a father. 
That's what he wants you to do. Say, God's really not good because he doesn't love me. So I can ask you this question. Who defines you? What defines you? What defines worth? Is it physical looks? Is it uh, your paycheck? Is it the size of your house? Is it your athletic ability? What defines you? Neither. Neither defines you. I'm going to tell you a story. You might have heard me tell this story. But I tell it a lot because it's a story on Father's Day. One that means a lot to me. And I think it needs, needs to be shared. One June morning when I was weeding our front flower garden, my daughter, my oldest daughter asked me, Dad, do you think I'm pretty? She was in the middle of her early high school years, which, by the way, are the hardest years ever. High school's cruel. Do you know that? It's mean. It's a mean place. It's weird how we send everybody to be jammed in this little place where everybody is figuring out who's better. They get little groups and say, our group's better than yours. And then you're defined that way, and some people never lose that label the rest of their life. It's cruel, especially when you still don't even know who you are yet. So my daughter's asking me, am I pretty? And that's another thing, especially in a small town where popularity is either, either based on an important family name or sports acumen. And at the time, she didn't really have either. And you could say, yeah, but she had the last name of Weeks, the pastor's daughter. That doesn't work well in a public school, just to let you know. So what do I tell her as a dad? What do I say as a dad? Because a simple, I think you're beautiful, often is not enough because that's what a dad's supposed to say. So as I was looking at the flowers, a thought came to me. I asked her, what is the difference between an annual and a perennial flower? An annual flower is a short-lived beauty. It lasts for one summer and it's gone. But a perennial takes its time. It isn't a forced fake beauty. It is one that is cultivated over time where each season the flowers and blooms become more abundant. Where in the winter the annual dies, never to be resurrected, but the perennial, the roots go deeper, they spread longer, and they become tougher. So it is with a person. Short-lived beauty and glory is just that, short-lived. But to grow a strong person in character and long-term beauty, God allows periods of winter. Winter includes suffering, quiet, deadness, loneliness. For the purpose of growing roots of faith. So they grow long and strong. So beauty of character and person lasts a lot longer than just mere popularity, which is all an annual is. And in this story, what we're going to do is take a little bit closer look and we're going to see that really Leah is a perennial. It, Rachel is an annual. Let me show you. So, poor Leah has a creepy dad for a father, which a lot of, some people claim they've got creepy parents that don't love them that much. But even though she was being used as a pawn between her creepy dad and deceitful Jacob, she still does have a father who really loves her the most. And like 
My daughter in the garden, I'm sure Leah wondered, am I loved? I mean, really, the way you have it in verse 30, he loved Rachel more than Leah. And what you're going to see, that affects Leah for the rest of her life. That affects her the rest of her life. And you can feel it come out in a narrative that she just wants to be loved. That's all she wants. It's interesting, Proverbs 14.10 says, Nobody knows the sorrows and bitterness of a human heart. Nobody knows what another person goes through. You can't compare suffering because everybody has their own dark closets, their own hidden secrets. It's because of alienation and it's because of Satan. He divides and conquers. So in the middle of that darkness, we come to verse 31. Watch this. This is an incredible verse. If you read this, you probably passed right by it. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved. He, he opened her womb. While Leah was overlooked and unwanted by everyone around her, used as a pawn by her dad, what you're going to see very competitive with her sister, ignored by Jacob. There's one person who doesn't ignore her. There's one person who cares. God, he saw her. Isaiah 57, 15 describes God's character. I live in a high and holy place, but also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. He loves to reach out to the brokenhearted. He loves it. Remember when Hagar, and he, Hagar was the maid of Sarah, she's thrown out in the desert with her son Ishmael. She's going to die there. God saw her. In the New Testament, there's this story about this lady who committed adultery. Everybody had a rock to stone her. Because people are really good at judging. I mean, we're amazing at stoning people without rocks. But there's one person that came up, wrote in the sand a little bit, and then he said, hey, uh, if any of you have never sinned, let him who's never sinned throw the first stone. And they all drop their stones, and there she is, left broken, weeping, unwanted, unloved, except for the one person named Christ. He loved her. God loves the brokenhearted. Jesus sees. He sees your brokenness. And when God sees, his compassion is aroused. That's why it says, he opened her womb. He wanted to bless her, because his compassion is aroused. Who opened her womb? He opened her womb. And then it says, but Rachel was barren. So if we keep reading, Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, it is because the Lord has seen my misery. She gets it. But if you notice, she still wants to be loved by other people, by her husband. Surely my husband will love me now. Surely my husband will love me because I gave him a baby. She conceived again. When she gave birth to a son, she said, because the Lord heard that I'm not loved. He's still full of compassion for her. He gave me this one too, so she named him Simeon. Again she conceived, this third baby. When she gave birth to a son, she said, now at last my husband will become attached to me. She still wants to be loved. Because I've born him three sons, so his name was Levi. But somewhere in between verse 34 and 35, 
she must have realized her husband really doesn't love her. In verse 35 says, she conceived again. And when she gave birth to a son, she said, this time, I'm just going to praise the Lord. So she named him Judah. Not only does God see, but God's the one who loves. It's funny, she really wanted Jacob to love her. And to try to earn his love, she wanted to do something. She wanted to earn his love. And she was hoping having a child was earn Jacob's love. That's how most of us behave. To get somebody's love, we try to do things. I, as a, when I was a youth pastor, I, I saw kids trying to earn their parents' love, their dad's love, by getting good grades or cleaning their room, being good at sports, and sometimes the parents didn't even notice. If you need to earn a person's love, if you need to earn your parents' love, it's really not love, it's slavery. Love should never have to be earned, ever. I thank God that I had a sister, I have a sister, from the age of about three months, she's now 61, she had the mind of um, an infant, basically. She couldn't do anything, she had to be fed, she had to be changed, but my dad loved her. She really didn't offer anything in return, but my dad loved her, and I really believe because of my sister, my dad had love for us because, hey, at least we were alive and thinking. Some parents, some parents only love their kids if they make the parent look good. That's not love. So if we went back to the question, who defines you? What defines worth? Is it another person? Leah got it. Finally, in verse 35, this time I will praise the Lord. It's God. God defines worth. And if she was waiting for Jacob's affection, she'd have to wait a long time. Do you get it? I mean, honestly, do you get it that God's the one that defines worth? I find the way you can tell if you get it, if you're always trying to impress people with the way you dress or your money or your stories or your house or your car, trying to impress people, it's a sign you don't get it that worth comes from God. You're trying to find it someplace else. And when you try to find it from people, they're fickle. Watch how fickle this story is. This, this story gets bad. Chapter 30, we're going to jump into dysfunctional mud. Do not do what happens from this point on. Starting in verse 1. When Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children, she became jealous of her sister. So she said to Jacob, Give me children or I will die. You better give me kids. Just because you have a good selfie doesn't mean you're that nice of a person. Be careful, guys. Beauty's not always, it's not always means she's a keeper. So give me children or I'll die. Jacob became angry with her and said, am I in a place of God? Who has kept you from having children? I mean, this is not good marriage relationships. Then she said, here's Bilhah, my maidservant. Sleep with her so that she can bear children for me and that through her I can build a family. So she gave him a servant, Bilhah, as a wife. Jacob slept with her and she became pregnant and bore him a son. And Rachel said, God has vindicated me, finally. <laughs> I'm on top now. It's kind of weird. 
He has listened to my plea and given me a son. Because of this, she named him Dan. Rachel's servant Bela conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. And Rachel said, I have had great struggle with my sister, and I have won. So she named him Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had stopped having children, she took her maidservant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son. Then Leah said, what good fortune. So she named him Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. And Leah said, how happy I am. The women will call me happy. So she named him Asher. This is a bad story. I mean, this is a bad home. And then look at this story. This is, this is a crazy story. Verse 14. During wheat harvest, Reuben went out into the fields and found some mandrake plants. So Reuben is Leah's oldest son. He found some mandrake plants, which he bought to his mother Leah. Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, wasn't it enough that you took away my husband? Will you take my son's mandrakes too? I think she's a little bitter there. I mean, she's just asking for mandrakes. I mean, no big deal. She was really storing up some anger. Very well, Rachel said. He can sleep with you tonight and return for your son's mandrakes. Does Jacob have a voice in any of this? Let me watch this verse 16. So when Jacob came in from the field that evening, Leah went out to meet him. You must sleep with me. Oh, Jacob's like, oh, great. They're fighting again. I should just stay in the field the rest of my life. I've hired you with my son's mandrakes. This is not love. This is not love. So she slept with him that night. God listened to Leah. She became pregnant and bore Jacob a fifth son. And Leah said, God has rewarded me for giving my maidservant to my husband. So she named him Issachar. Leah conceived again, bore Jacob a sixth son. Leah said, God has presented me with a precious gift. This time my husband will treat me with honor because I bore... she still wants her husband's love. Sometime later, she gave birth to a daughter and named her Dinah. First service, I said, Dinah is that lady that rowed that boat ashore. And, and Rhonda came up and said, no, no, no. Dinah's the one where the guy's working on the railroad. And who's the guy that rowed the boat ashore? Um, Michael rowed the boat ashore. So when I said that the first service, everybody's kind of looking at me like, what's wrong with him? A lot of things are wrong with him. A lot of things. Hey, uh, Jared, somebody escorted him out of the... <laughs> then God remembered Rachel. He listened to her and opened her womb. She became pregnant, gave birth to a son and said, God has taken away my disgrace. She named him Joseph. Said, may the Lord add to me another son. Oh, that's how the nation of Israel came to be right there. The 12 tribes right there. Through a lot of family jealousy, in anger, in dispute. But through all of this bad train wreck of a story, God is unconditional in His love. You could even say Leah's relationship with Jacob wasn't perfect either. She was also a little catty. She also caused a lot of the problem. But even in our humanness, even in our fallenness, God is the one who still sees, even has compassion on Rachel. He cares about her. So here's, if we could sum up, where did we start? We started by saying Leah was a victim of alienation. She was unwanted, overlooked, and it wasn't her fault. 
And she suffered, clearly suffered, knowing her husband didn't love her and loved her sister. You could say Leah was a woman that was alone. But verse 31, God saw her. God saw her. And he honored her. The compassionate God hears the cry of the brokenhearted. Look at how he honored her. I want to show you something amazing. Here's some of her children. And I want to see if one of these names jumps out to you. So you have Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, and Dinah. And hopefully you see by the slideshow, red. So Judah should jump out. But why also does Judah jump out? Judah means, I praise God in praise of God. Judah also was the father to the tribe of the kings. Judah's lineage has David in it. Judah's lineage has Solomon in it. Judah's lineage, the son of Leah who wasn't loved, Judah, the son of Leah who wasn't loved, in his lineage there's a guy by the name of Jesus. So the one who was lonely, lost, and alone was given a son whose son would bless us all. That's called being honored. That's amazing to me. So this unloved, forgotten, unwanted woman has, has blessed you. Not only that, I want to show you something else which is pretty unique. Go to Genesis 49. Genesis chapter 49. And I want you to go to verse 29. This is the end of Jacob's life. Israel, the father of all those kids. The father whose family fights over mandrakes. This is Jacob's end of his life. Verse 29. Then Jacob gave them these instructions. He's given this to his kids. I am about to be gathered to my people. That's an idiom, a phrase for I'm about to die and be with, go to heaven to be with God and my people. So bury me with my fathers in the cave in the field of Ephron the Hittite. The cave in the field of Machpelah near Mamre in Canaan, which Abraham bought as a burial place from Ephron the Hittite along with the field. There Abraham and his wife Sarah were buried. So this burial place is reserved for the patriarchy, the people of God, those that God honors and blesses. So Jacob says, I want to be buried with where my grandfather Abraham and Sarah were buried. Uh, that's also where Isaac, my father, and Rebekah, my mother, were buried. And in that tomb, I buried Rachel. Leah. He buried Leah. Where, where did Rachel die? Well, in the story of Genesis, Rachel had another kid named Benjamin. She had, it was a terrible pregnancy, and she died after giving birth to Benjamin. And she was buried in a field outside of Bethlehem in Ephrathah. They don't know where. When my wife and I were in Israel, we went to Rachel's restaurant. The food wasn't too good. They say that she's buried underneath. There might be something to do with it. I don't know. I don't know where Rachel's buried, but I know where Leah's buried. Leah, the unloved, overlooked woman, is with the people of God in honor. That's amazing. It's a very interesting verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 126. Take a look at this verse. 
Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. So he's trying to remind you of why God loved you. Well, not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. You could, you could also say many of you were overlooked and unwanted. I mean, you weren't. I was. Remember, I was that kid on the bottom of the roller coaster that wasn't popular at all. Only my dog loved me. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise so that no one may boast before him. So that we don't say, God chose me because look at me. No, God loved me because he's love. He's good. And he wants to take somebody like me and honor me. So all I can do is Judah him back. Praise him back. I will praise him. So if your earthly dad has never really loved you, if you feel overlooked and unwanted, everybody else seems to be really having a great life, you do have another dad. You have a heavenly father that loves to look for the overlooked and unwanted and unloved. So he can love them. Because those are the people who get it. They truly get it. They get, not only does God love to honor those that don't deserve honor, but He's good. He's really good. And so on this Father's Day, we should say, Happy Birthday, Dad. You're good. 